I want to do something. Uh, yeah, just one thing to conclude, just to add something. I really advise you to see it. You know, remember on Monday, I developed briefly this idea of universality, the u truly universal dimension based in what appears in our immediate experience as an exception. And you must be aware, my God, this was said hundreds of times by me, by others. This is the same logic shared by Marx and Freud. Freud, one of his big insights is that it's not that we should begin with the normal, what appears as normal functioning of our brain, and then in the second round you explain pathologies, deviations, as just precisely deviations, that deviation is the key. To understand how our mind works, you must begin with dreams, slips of tongue, and so on and so on with deviations. They provide the key. Marx, it's a vague homology, but it holds, I think. Marx says the same thing when he emphasizes that crisis is the key to understand the functioning of capitalism. So you must begin with what appears a malfunctioning a deviation and then <coughs> see how, again, only in this way can you understand the functioning of the entire system. And just to amuse you, please do it if you have time. I have no power. I will not control you and so on, but do it. One example is so wonderful, I just didn't want to complicate things with bringing a USB where then, by definition, always something goes wrong and so on, you know. I discovered it quite by chance. Do you know that... Okay, where is, is the Russian lady who was sitting here? No, she's not here today, she couldn't make it. Ah, so sad, because I wanted to appeal to her with her... Stupid, okay. Uh, no, sorry, what I wanted to say is that since she is very much in the Russian tradition, uh, you know, with Sergei Eisenstein, the great one, the one, uh, we associate certain formal procedures, wild montage, discontinuity, I will not go into it all, which then Eisenstein tried to associate or present as the formal staging presentation of revolutionary dynamics. The, the idea is that his very formal procedure is revolutionary. Now I found the exception. Please, look, it, it's very easy. You get some ten versions on YouTube. Uh, you, uh, you can download it legally. You don't break any law and so on. It's from... 1930, you know, after fiasco there, let's be frank, of the old and the new general line, Eisenstein moved to the West and was first a little bit in Germany, then in France, then he moved to the United States, he tried to do some things there, then he went to Mexico, you know the story. But what he did in France was something so embarrassing, purely for reasons of money, he met, I don't know through whom, a rich Russian uh, emigrant, rich, who wanted a movie, early sound movie, 
celebrating his mistress, a beautiful woman. So he hired Eisenstein and Grigory Alexandrov, his partner, to do a short movie anything. And it's uh, like the title is Romance Sentimental, Sentimental Romance. It's a 19 minutes and a half piece, pure, as pure as you can imagine romantic kit. First you have wild nature standing in for passionate sex, right? Then you see a woman behind the piano, alone, uh, uh, singing this type of romantic song, and then at the end, passionate returns, whatever. Pure romantic kitsch. But you know what's the shock? All his formal procedures are there, and you cannot avoid the impression they fit even better with this romantic kitsch than with all the revolutionary bullshit and so on. So I would do the same operation here. Why not take, and incidentally, Eisenstein was so embarrassed by this that later he denied that he didn't have anything to do with it. He was proven wrong. He was lying. Uh, Because in the same studio, Louis Buñuel was finalizing his, which, what was that one with... uh, and and he said, but wait a minute, he was in the next room doing this movie and so on. So what I, you know, you see my point, this is the exception. The same formal procedures, wild montage, cuts, discontinuous music and so on, but used for totally the most traditional ideology. So what if we do the same evil operation and uh, from this standpoint, of exception, he was ashamed of it, read his other works. And you do discover suspicious elements also in them. There is a lot of naive sentimentality in Eisenstein and so on and so on. So do it, I guarantee you, you you will be amused. Again, you just type it, Eisenstein Roman sentimental, and if you do it from YouTube to that converter, you have it in less than one minute, whatever. Okay. This is just the introduction. Now, ah, now I now I okay. stop and oh, you. No, no. You ah, don't ah, need an introduction. That's what my idea. I wanted to to leave you the illusion that you will not have to do it. No. Now I stop and please introduce me. Oh God, who are you? I don't know you. Esther introduced him on Monday. I introduced you yesterday. Yes, again. You and I'm not worth to be introduced. And what I'm, no, what I'm, as I said yesterday, I cannot introduce you because you, we never know what you're going to talk about. So you, you might go into any fucking path. Hmm? I introduced him yesterday as Sweepen from uh, Jorge's um, uh, Garden of Fucking Paths, where he just follows every possible avenue without actually making a... Yeah, uh, a decision as to to finish one point, and he you remember another point, and we go on, and that's what we enjoy about it. And no, uh, you've I done must that already correct, today. I must correct you. I don't follow all possible paths. One of the myths about me in Slovenia is that just when I see a possible path to to give an obscene twist to any line of thought, to say something obscene. Dirty, you can be sure that I will take that path, and that's the only thing you can be sure of. All right.
sorry, but please. Today, I mean, now you've, you've got uh, no, the license to take the obscene path. No, no, no. I will precisely. Face. I want to disappoint you. Today, I want to do, because you are here the last time, so even if I disappoint you, I don't care how many of you will come next time, because there is no next time. <laughs> yeah, of course not, my God. No, no, no. It will be, I don't know when, next year, but of this Oh, yeah, yeah. So, this is the end, no? So I will go a little bit more into, at least in the beginning, please allow me into serious philosophy. And please, let me tell you again that uh, with all the... You notice this, no? That I offend, insult only friends. And all my friends know it. That this is my way to show real friendship. Why? Because... It's so elementary, I don't get it how people don't get it. The meaning of this is, I hope you will accept it. Uh, you see, we are such friends, we trust each other so much that we can afford even talking like that. For me, politeness is always a fear. I don't trust you, I don't know. And, but but uh, to avoid a misunderstanding, I'm not saying that it works with everyone. We should just talk dirty and so on. With some people, in some situations, it works. With others, it doesn't work. But it, uh, I had quite some triumphs along this path. Uh, before I go, one more. I think I already even used this story here. Uh, about my experience in Argentina, where <clears throat> I spoke there. This was such a surprise how I dragged somebody into obscene stuff. An old, very distinguished professor, you know, grey hair, he irradiated distinction, respect. And precisely to shock him, I went into, you know, this double meaning, I know you know the joke of the verb coger, not in Spain but in Argentina, because the standard Argentinian joke is that in Spain it's just to grab, to search, in Argentina it's the F word. So the standard joke is, and from him I got then the full story. The standard joke is that a stupid Spaniard comes to Argentina and asks, Donde puedo coger un taxi? Where can I grab a cab? And of course, Argentinians start to laugh. And this guy, I first thought I went too far. It was sublime experience of the divine. Because he, I thought he would be mad at me. You know, this really distinguished old person. Looked at me, then he started to laugh slowly and said, "The our answer is maybe you can try into into exhaust fume. It's difficult, but you know this was. I felt so good. This very distinguished old guy. He played my game. I broke him. You know. Okay, now really, uh, let's go on. So the same with you. Which was that? Re I. I no, don't, don't. No, nothing dirty. I will not ask, like, donde puedo coger Maria or what. Don't be afraid. <laughs> you go. No, what I really want to say is take her seriously. You did a book, you did a reader and so on, no? Your stuff I'm talking. Uh-huh. Which is uh, worth reading, effectively. She is in the stuff. You know how I, I know? Because with some of my talk, you said that was really good. But I no, no, read no. it correctly. You know, like the subtle message was no, not no, like no, the no. last time when it was not, you know. <laughs> and this is what I like. This, uh, also, the opposite, the insults in the form of kindness, you know. 
The most bitchy and women know this better than men. The, the really bitchy insult is you just praise, but then automatically in the background is the question, oh, so the other time I was not good at what. Let's go on now, finally. You excuse me if I go really into metaphysics now. From this I will approach sex and the absolute. The project, that's why I'm postponing with this stupid introduction, because uh, the project is really naive. I think we should risk things to ask <clears throat> the most traditional naive questions, metaphysical even. And I want to approach and even risk an answer, which will be mediated by sex, to this most traditional theological or philosophical question. Again, with all naivety this implies. Is there, for us, humans, caught and embedded in a contingent historical reality? Is there any possible contact with the absolute? Whatever we mean by this, and mostly we mean simply a point somehow exempted from the permanent flux of reality. You know, all reality is moving, corruption, destruction, generation of new, but is there a point of absolute? I claim that we have four, I am thinking now again, tired of all these transcendental deconstructionist things, I want to approach it in an absolutely naive way. Uh, but at the same time, highly theoretical and close to your experience. I think there are, as far as I could have seen it, maybe you can correct me, four main ways to do it. First, there are many traditional answers which rely on <coughs> this, our elevation nonetheless in certain privileged ecstatic moment to exempt ourselves from the flux of reality and get in touch with the absolute. The first model of this would have been in ancient Hindu Upanishad as the unity of Brahman, the supreme and sole ultimate reality, and Atman, the soul within each human being. So the idea is that when our soul purifies itself, of all accidental, non-spiritual content, it experiences ecstatically its identity with the absolute foundation of all reality. And this experience is usually, again, described in terms of some higher identity of the opposite, as Schelling, the German idealist, put it. It's, you are neither active nor passive, uh, even uh, for selling, the model of this is artistic creation, which, in contrast to human activity, that was Schelling's problem. And he is unique, Schelling, in privileging art over philosophy. He says philosophy, as articulate rational thinking, is still a form of activity trying to penetrate its passive object. And the opposite experience of, of, uh, of perceiving beauty or whatever, and there we are passive. Is there an absolute identity of passivity and activity? And for him it is artistic creativity, where, of course, in some sense, 
the actor, agent, writer, composer, is active, but at the same time, it's not that you as a self are active. It's something acts through you. You know, to use these kitschy words, which even Lacan sometimes uses, something in me more than myself is acting through me, and so on. So, uh, we have different versions, but this it would be of it, and we have then, of course, the Buddhist version, which is the most radical, when you get over your false identity of yourself, you become, it's a beautiful, precise description, your thoughts become thoughts without a thinker, an agent. You become just an open space for thoughts. Your mind becomes like an empty screen. You become, become one with whatever we call it, sunyata, the void, and so on and so on. So this is the first answer. It has its, it has its authenticity. I don't make fun of it. I'm just describing, giving you a classification. Then uh, the second position, which is more paradoxical. In a way, I think I already <coughs> mentioned it. Uh, uh, the first, didn't I on the first day here, which means Monday, uh, mention the example making fun of myself, losing a friend, of Billy Bathgate? You know, two novels, and uh, the real one is just a virtual point of reference between the two. Uh, what logic do we have here? Not only in art, but mostly in art, you find an opposite, exactly opposite notion of the absolute. Not absolute as the ultimate foundation, in the sense of, you know, you lose all, you get rid of all empirical reality and so on, just the real substance behind, which is why, incidentally, in this first line, I should also have mentioned Spinoza, of course. What Spinoza calls the intellectual love of God is precisely this ecstatic unity with substance as the only ultimate reality. The second position would have been <coughs> that, of course, reality, the way we know it, it's all permanent flux, degradation, everything returns to dust. But the only absolute eternity that we can experience is the eternity of the pure appearance itself. I will quote you one example which I quote in one of my books already, so I'm sorry if you know it. In one of Agatha Christie's short stories, Hercule Poirot, discovers that an ugly nurse is the same person as the beauty he met on a transatlantic voyage years ago. She merely put on a weak and obfuscated her natural beauty. Hastings, Poirot's Watson-like companion, sadly remarks how if a beautiful woman can make herself appear ugly, then the same can also be done in the opposite direction. What then remains in man's infatuation beyond deception? Thus, this insight into the unreliability of the beauty of the beloved woman not announce the end of love. Poirot answers 
No, my friend, it announces the beginning of wisdom. Such a skepticism, such an awareness of the decept deceptive nature of feminine beauty, I will now not touch the point why this male chauvinist perspective, just, I think, more informal terms, misses the point, I think, which is that, again, I'm sorry for male chauvinist twist, it can be all reformulated, that uh, feminine beauty is nonetheless absolute, an absolute which temporarily appears, no matter how fragile and deceptive this beauty is, at the level of substantial reality. What transpires through it is the moment of beauty as an absolute. There is more truth in the appearance than in what is hidden beneath appearance. And I think, Alain Badiou knows this, that's also how we should read Plato. Not in the substantial way that there is reality, but beneath this reality there is another more substantial reality. No, when Plato talks about eternal ideas, he precisely talks about the very form of appearance. Plato knew this, later realist readers missed it. I idea means the pure form of how things appear to us. At least the late Plato, he knows very well that ultimately our reality is one of decay, degradation, and so on. In Timaeus and the last text, he makes this very clear. So again, uh, uh, you know, again, imagine man, work of art, whatever. It's all fragile, but when you are entranced by it, when you have this experience, my God, briefly, I feel intensely the beauty of it. It can be uh, a, a, a woman's or a man's body, it can be whatever. This fragile appearance is absolute. Of course, it's an absolute which is totally rooted in concrete experience. Like, you disturb the experience a little bit, there is no absolute, just vulgar reality. But experience is here, and this is, this would be the aestheticist view, that this is the encounter of the absolute. It doesn't matter if it's historically conditioned, of course it is, and so on. But in that ecstatic moment, you encounter something which is in the air, more than reality. And... Again, it's pure appearance. It's not another substantial reality. This would be then uh, the opposite view, this fragility of the absolute. Now, let's go on. The third form of the absolute is, I call it, the transcendental absolute. And I would include here Western Marxism. What do I mean by transcendental absolute? I mean this. The entire philosophy, modern usually, privileges one specific experience, claiming that, not that it's absolute, but that in our human space, we cannot move behind or beyond it. Germans have a beautiful term, Unhintergebar. You cannot go step behind it. And 
Here we get, for example, in a very simple way, the distinction, the gap that forever separates so-called Western Marxism from the Stalinist dialectical materialism. Stalinist dialectical materialism is a traditional ontology. Dialectical materialism is supposed to deploy the loss, rules the train, entire material reality, and since we are just a tiny species on our planet, and so on, then, concretely, uh, uh, our historical experience, historical materialism, becomes just a specific sphere of reality. This is traditional realism. The whole, not whole, whole, but the basic first philosophical gesture of Western Marxism is to say, no, in our, this may be in some naturalist sense clear. Of course, even the most radical Western Marxists, like the young Lukács and so on, did not think that we humans created nature. They were aware we emerged on this stupid planet, blah, blah, blah. And they were as pessimist as I am. For me, getting old and bitter, did you see Lars von Trier's, uh, 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 what's that one where the earth explodes? Melancholia. Melancholia. I think this is a very happy movie. Good thing happens at the end, but that's another story. What I want to say is that, uh, as Lukács points out, the fact is, and this is the transcendental dimension at its purest, the fact is that all our experience, even experience of reality like fossils independent of us, blah, blah, is mediated through, not through our thinking, Lukács is a Marxist materialist, through our collective historical praxis. As Lukács puts it in classic terms, Nature is always a historical category. And this is, for me, the transcendental approach. Although you, in principle, admit we are just part of tiny reality, blah, 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 but nonetheless, in our practical experience, the way we experience reality, no matter how abstract this reality is, Imagine now they are discovering water on Mars. Maybe this means there is life there, whatever. It's always mediated by our practice. And the classical example here, I'm sorry if I am repeating myself, I also repeat it because it's the most simple one, would have been, for example, literally the concept of nature. The first great biologist, Linné, I think he was Danish, but I'm not sure, Belgian. Danish or Belgian? Danish, yeah. uh, his image of nature as hierarchical system clearly minor, mirrors the absolute monarchy of early modernity. With Darwin, you know that this is an empirical fact, that Darwin was directly influenced by Malthus in his notion of natural evolution and struggle for survival. Now, be careful here. Neither me nor the young Lukács would claim, oh, there is no truth then in Darwinism. No, just, it doesn't say they are not true. It says, nonetheless, that their, their, their appearance, the appearance of Darwinism was clearly located, echoed, was part of the 
experience of reality rooted in early wild capitalism. And then it goes on. Isn't it clear how today's predominance in cognitive sciences and so on, image of nature as DNA and so on, system of information and so on, is again clearly conditioned by new digital media, by this new approach which sees exchange of information and so on in genes or whatever. So, uh, again, that's the point, that uh, you cannot abstract from concrete historical experience. And uh, what I'm saying, now you will say this is subjectivism. No, it's not. Because uh, uh, what I'm saying here is something much more precise. Uh, it's that uh, there can be this transcendental logic in the sense of a particular sphere which overdetermines our experience of reality as such. Uh, uh, it can even be thought without subject. In very precise terms, Claude Lévi-Strauss defined very precisely his anthropology as transcendentalism without a transcendental subject, without subject. He is Kantian, but without the subject. Kantian, in the sense that for him, symbolic structure is, again, to use the German term, unhintergebar. You cannot step behind it. You are always caught in it. And it can be easily shown that there is a point in it. Even if we talk about nature, nature is everything, but we always conceive it in opposition to culture. We cannot think nature without this implicit negation. This is why this would also be another wonderful approach. How I claim to struggle with or to even confront properly ecological problems. We, I often repeat this point, I'm sorry if you know it, we have to get rid of this idea of nature as natural. Our spontaneous notion of the natural is something which moves in circle, repeats itself again and again. Na nature is a certain basic rhythm. Sun goes down, next morning sun goes up, epochs, winter, summer, and so on. This natural balanced rhythm. And then within this natural balanced rhythm, man appears as humanity, appears as a natural hubris, distortion. We disturbed the rhythm. I think we have to totally abandon this perspective. First, there is absolutely no base to conceive nature as some kind of a balanced cir circular movement, which then we evil humans disrupt, destroy. This notion of nature is precisely human projection at its purest. Again, sorry to repeat myself, my old example, just think about what is our main source of energy, oil, uh, uh, oil and, uh, and uh, coal and so on. But can you just imagine what kind of mega ecological catastrophes must have happened in 
human pre-human history of our earth to have all this resorts. I mean, we are literally being fed. The, so, uh, the source of our energy are the past catastrophes. So it's totally wrong, and uh, uh, and uh, that, this is another more subversive thing of Darwin. He saw this how. Every, bal- every balance of na- natural balance is contingent, temporary, and so on and so on. It's not that we humans are hubris. Nature is even more crazy than we are. Again, my old joke, if you say Mother Earth, well, this mother is a dirty bitch. You cannot <laughs> rely on her. And that's very important to take into account in confronting ecology today. I think we should drop all those the, the metaphorics of we disturb natural balance, we should return to it, and so on and so on. We are permanently under threat. Peter Sloterdijk, my right-wing friend, put it nicely that on all three levels, surface of the earth, beneath and above, there are threats. Above, who knows, you know, a relatively small in uh, celestial terms. Asteroid can screw things up totally. Beneath, who knows, a strong volcanic explosion, it can be a relatively small one, but you, you remember the big one, which was a shock in late 19th century, that close to Indonesia or where, that small island, Krakat- Krakatoa. Just one island blown up. But you know that for two years afterwards, there was hunger in Europe because of the clouds and so on. We are so fragile, and of course, the earth itself, storms and all that and so on. So we have to get a sense of this utter, utter fragility of even the natural, of even uh, the natural uh, uh, balance. So uh, back to my historical materialist or whatever, uh, Marxist point and so on and so on uh, what does the transcendental approach mean it, in what sense it is absolute that's the beauty of historical materialist approach I will give you an old example but the Tao of news but just to make this clear historicity does not mean there are no absolute truths Everything is relative. Who knows? There can be another perspective on it. No. There is an access to absolute. Absolute in the sense of unconditional, totally reliable, but not in the sense of eternal, outside our scope. Simply, you can arrive at this truth at the level of reflexive self-relation. What do you mean by this? Oh, sorry, again my old example. Sorry if I repeat myself. Let us take anti-Semitism. I like it because it's ideology at its purest. You know my sympathy for Palestinians, but nonetheless, I like this example because it's pure. I claim that uh, when, sorry, repeating my old joke, uh, if you debate, let's say, with an anti-Semitic German, usually I locate this debate 35 Germany, I'm the bad guy, not you. You are the good guy. I'm anti-Semitic. And you say, you criticize me. And I say, let's compare. Let's turn to the facts. The moment you do this, you 
have sold your soul to the devil. Because the, 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 if we turn to the facts, the truth would have been somewhere in between. I can say, okay, we maybe exaggerate a little bit, but look at the statistics. 60% of lawyers in Germany are Jews. This is true. 70% of journalists are Jews. It's true. Many Jews were rich, exploited, ordinary Germans. It's true. And then I, uh, you can say, oh, but some of the Jews are poor. I say, okay, but there is a problem. We can, we can debate endlessly. But I think, <clears throat> I think that uh, first, uh, that the problem here is, na is not to approach it at this level. Because, again, you know my old joke here, the Lacan that I always quote, the... Uh, my inspiration is here, Lacan, who wrote somewhere already in his early years, I think, that even if, uh, if, a jealous if a husband is pathologically jealous of his wife, and even if all his suspicions are true, the wife is promiscuous, sleeping around, his jealousy is nonetheless pathological. Why? Because the true question is not, is his wife really like that? The true question is, why? Is his entire identity rooted in the jealousy? Why does he need jealousy? So again, I'm not saying Jews are really like that. I'm saying it's ultimately indifferent, although we should analyze it. I, but the basic question is, why does a Nazi need the figure of the Jew without which his entire ideological edifice falls apart? And here we discover the fundamental lie, which is imminently a lie, to cover up social antagonisms and so on. So, you see what I'm saying? Independently of all research into data and so on, anti-Semitism is a lie. It's absolutely wrong. You cannot, because the level at which it's truth or its false nature is decided, it is at this subjectively reflected level. It's not, Jews are not really like that. Up to a point they are. All people are a little bit of this empirically, a little bit of that. But nonetheless, the way the Nazi universe is structured, uh, uh, anti-Semitism functions as a lie. And now we come to the tricky nature of it, and we can debate this later. It functions as a lie, and the most efficient lie it is when it's at the level of facts partially true. And there we can debate it here. But that's where I'm afraid of uh, how liberal left in Europe is dealing with immigrants, you know. If there is some crime committed by them, don't talk about it, and so on, and so on. No, it's horrible. In this way, you abandon the field and give the argument to the right-wingers. Our true question should not, be, uh, uh, should not be, is it true or not? Of course, immigrants commit crimes, but we commit even more crimes, and so on. The point is not this. The point is, why this? totally irrational fear that a couple of thousand of immigrants will threaten our identity and so on and so on. Don't look at them, immigrants. Look at us. 
And this is absolutely true. So my point is, even if many data quoted by alt-right about immigrant crimes and so on, even there, of course, things are more complex. Like in my own country, Slovenia, they now, the latest right-wing rumor against immigrants is that they are involved in suspicious activities in some cultural center on Metelkova Street, which is close to their home building allocated to them, that they are selling drugs and or some I don't know what. But, you know, even at the level of facts, it gets more complex, because probably they are doing it, but why? Uh, imagine their situation. They were put in that home with a little bit of money just to survive, without any care of what will they do in their life. They are desperate because they have families back at home, and, okay, it's not nice, but fuck it. They try to survive, to earn some money, to send it back home, and so on. They don't have any chance to get involved in some job because, you know, these are the tricks of enlightened Europe. Uh, they only get help as uh, homeless immigrants if they don't have a job. You know, these are the usual dirty tricks and so on. So what I'm saying is that, yes, we should also honestly analyze things at this level. But again, the basic point, again, is this transcendental term. In the sense of, don't forget about your own perspective. Like, things can be judged absolutely at this level. Antisemitism in the 30s. Or, uh, for example... Black racism today. Did I mention Black Lives Matter on Monday? I think I did. Yes, I mean, why it is... You see, here we get to analyze concrete universality. You know this standard right liberal argument? Why black lives matter? Why not all lives matter? No, it's false. You know why? It's false in the same way that, for example, in Germany in '35. If you were to say, but why focus only on Jews? Why don't mention also how Germans suffer and so on? No, the, precisely because they were central ideological construct of the Nazi ideology, hatred of the Jews was, I'm almost tempted to use here this wonderful Kant's notion of transcendental schematism. In the sense that when you have a universal category, to for this category to be ideologically effective, it is always schematized. By this I mean embodied in a certain concrete specific uh, category. The example that I use in my old books is, I'm unfortunately old enough, before Tony Blair there was Joan Major, the Prime Minister, last conservative before New Labour, and it's incredible how when they already at that point, okay, already, Thatcher already did it, when they started the attack on welfare state, they schematized it through the figure of, uh, of uh, unemployed single mother. This was it. And it's incredible how somehow, I almost admire them, they somehow related all the social evils to that figure. We don't have enough budget uh, because we have to support single mothers. We have 
uh, youth delinquency, of course, because single mothers can... It was absolutely incredible how everything was symbolized. That, you see, this is what Kant means by schematism. And in a similar way today, I claim, at least in the United States, uh, uh, violence against blacks, even if all that right-wingers are saying, probably is at some level true, like, you know, the usual right-wing argument is, but wait a minute, more black people kill other black people than white policemen and so on. This can all be quantitatively true, but nonetheless, in today's ideological situation with all right, alt right, and so on and so on, this specific violence of authority against blacks is the field which schematizes the entire situation. Which is why, again, to say in an apparently innocent, common sense way, why only black lives? All lives matter. It's already to cut off the edge. It's already, it's a false neutrality. And politically a very difficult, uh, 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 very difficult uh, uh, false uh, neutrality. Okay, so, uh, uh, <clears throat> I hope I make, not in a not too confused way, this situation clear. Next point. You will say, but what I'm dreaming about, the transcendental situation, this is way behind us. No, as I already developed years ago, so I hope I'm not telling you the old stuff. I think that <clears throat> what we usually call this deconstructionism, or this historicist cultural relativism, is absolutely the most radical form of transcendental approach. Why? Because... For them, the, again, this German term, unhintergebar, that horizon behind which you cannot step is concrete, symbolic, historical experience. Let me take you an example, you all know it, Michel Foucault. For him, the ultimate point of our experience is what he calls episteme or power structure, whatever, the, this, so, what do I mean by this? Let us say, repeat myself, I know, if you were to ask a Foucauldian, do I have free will or not? He would simply reject this question as such, because he would have said, wait a minute, which is the horizon of minute, symbolic space, within which you can even raise this question? And he would have probably said... It's only the modernity, and he will be incidentally right. In medieval times and so on, uh, freedom, individual freedom and social law were not opposed in the way in which in modernity we oppose them. So, uh, or if you were to ask uh, a Foucauldian, do we have an immortal soul? He would have said, wait a minute, you, by raising this question, you already presuppose or rely on a certain space of symbolic oppositions, meaning, and so on, soul, mortality, immortality, which are not self-evident. So, uh, for Foucault, you cannot step behind this horizon. When you establish the episteme of a certain epoch, that's it. And now, if you go to the end in this direction, and Foucault does, you arrive at Heidegger, of course. For whom 
and many politically correct uh, cultural historians then go to the end in this direction when they claim, for example, why should we privilege modern science over traditional wisdoms? They simply move in different epistemes. They don't rely on the same notion of truth. And in some sense, they are right. Uh, science is never works like, oh, I look around, I forget all the prejudices, I just... Uh, no, silence comes with the whole bag of implicit presuppositions that objective reality is out there, meaningless, subordinated only to natural laws, and so on and so on. This was the greatest break of modernity to approach nature as meaningless in itself. For medieval times, nature was meaningful in itself. So, uh, what I'm saying is that in this sense, this deconstructionist historicism, <clears throat> there are no, it uh, always include the horizon from which you approach it. Then Derrida would have added to it, of course, this horizon is always contradictory, inconsistent with itself, and so on. This is, for me, the most radical level of transcendental approach, where, again, you reject direct confrontation with reality. I see this. What is this? You always ask, yes, but how do I see it? When I question it, do I not already imply a certain perspective on it? And so on. <coughs> Sorry. Uh, <coughs> and uh, to go a step further here, uh, even with uh, even with uh, Heidegger, uh, even with Derridean deconstruction. Uh, now, I don't know how much you know Derrida. He is a little bit out of fashion now. But uh, she gets caught in the same problem. Transcendentalism doesn't cover it all. You know where you can... Uh, on the one hand, Derrida even described his procedure as archi-transcendental. He wants to bring the transcendental approach to the end. At the same time, he sometimes, for necessary reasons, I don't have today to type to go it into detail, but he comes dangerously close to some kind of a nonetheless new form of realism. Look at the notion of trace or archie, arche, trace in his work. On the one hand, it's pure transcendentalism. In the sense that he said, in whatever we claim, there is already a trace of our horizon, relativizing it in a historicist way. But in some comments on biological works, he all of a sudden starts to talk about the function of difference and trace in nature itself. You know, if you see this slip of, from this eternal transcendental self-questioning to some kind of, let's call it naive realism. Reality itself, independently of us, is structured as difference, as trace. This is why <coughs> Derrida often gets embarrassed when he asks, sometimes he does, honestly, a simple question. When he talks about the early, traditional Derrida, metaphysics of presence. Is this 
European metaphysics of presence? Or is it universal? Can we step out of it? For example, when he approaches the problem of Chinese thought, uh, is it that all we can say, the traditional Derrida's line is that, this inside-outside game, we are caught in metaphysics of presence, we can just do cuts, break it up, but we cannot ever step outside. Because the very idea of stepping outside is the ultimate metaphysical illusion. Okay, but nonetheless, what does this mean? For example, when we Europeans confront the Chinese thought, that we are, that uh, are we allowed to say this is also metaphysical present? Is it totally different? Can we get it? And again, at this point, uh, things get complicated. But what I find especially interesting, again, is uh, this idea of uh, uh, transcendental horizon in, in traditional Marxism. You see where they always say the ultimate horizon of our experience is social practice. Every, even our most abstract cognition is rooted in collective practice. We cannot step out of it. <clears throat> I think what we, and here I follow Kantan Mayasu and other new realists, or no, not to the end, what I, I think that the transcendental approach doesn't work all the way. Because in some sense, they have to admit that, at least at the ontic level, level of simple empirical reality, we are a miserable species which emerged on the planet Earth, and so on and so on. Now, how to bring these two together? This general evolutionary view, there is a history of nature, uh, uh, Big Bang, blah, blah, and then gradually we emerged on a stupid small planet, and there is this transcendental approach. All that we know is conditioned by our social practice. And uh, the ultimate solution of transcendental Marxist is therefore necessarily a kind of radical agnosticism. We cannot know it. The idea is that all that we know about reality is nonetheless relative in the sense of already overdetermined, conditioned by our collective experience. So, we cannot think outside our collective experience, which means that the only absolute that we have is the horizon of our collective experience. It's not absolute in the sense of absolute spirit, origin, godlike. It's absolute in the simple sense that we cannot step, step outside it. But nonetheless, the naive question remains here. So, we are not able to answer the question, where does this transcendental horizon itself come from? Because the transcendentalist would have said, in such a procedure, the transcendental horizon is always already presupposed. Every answer will be conditioned by our collective experience, and so on and so on. And this is the edge where I think today's thought is moving, in very general terms. We have deconstructionism, other forms of 
transcendentalism, you can play these endless games of this Derrida called this always already. In what you are saying, even if you are talking about Big Bang, human collective experience is always already presupposed. So you cannot step behind it, but nonetheless we necessarily talk as if we can when we do evolutionary biology and so on. <clears throat> of course, the empirical dream here is to say, but why can't we simply do it? Evolutionary biolog biology can explain how, through all evolutionary tricks and so on, how gradually out of some apes, blah, blah, I don't know the story, we humans emerge and so on. So, but transcendentalists point out that this never works fully. You always have a certain circularity. You already presuppose, and you know who is here a transcendentalist, although he attacks transcendentalists not like crazy. Uh, Louis Althusser, even. When he talks in his early work already for Marx and Reading Capital about a structure, he emphasizes that structure is always already here. You cannot step out. You cannot ever evolutionary explain a structure. Every such explanation already presupposes a structure. You presuppose what you want to explain. And you find this even in Marx, incidentally, when he says in his famous passage <coughs> from Grundrisse, I think, forward, introduction, so-called, sorry, that the, the concept of man is the condition for the concept, presupposition of the, of the, gives the key to the concept of ape. So, Marx's approach is not, we can gradually explain the higher level from lower levels, gradual evolution. No, his point is that precisely because there is no teleology, nothing was predetermined, man might have not emerged. You need first structural order to search for its origins. And if, if you think I'm dreaming here, think about the paradox of capital. It's a transcendental work. Transcendental in the sense that, as Marx emphasizes, his starting point is the developed capitalist system. He analyzes its form in detail, and only then, in the last chapter of Capital, on, uh, uh, on uh, so-called primordial accumulation, so-called, uh, you can look into its uh, uh, genesis. <clears throat> so again, even structuralist, even Althusser, uh, uh, Althusser in a most interesting way, because this is the big problem, the question prohibited by structuralism. You have chaos, then all of a sudden a structure is here. But every approach Every way to articulate the genesis of structure or let it uh, presupposes the structure. So, are we then caught in this duality? That, and this is where, for example, even honest thinkers like Habermas remain. His basic move, Habermas's problem is how to prevent total scientific objectivization of our lives. And his answer is basically a transcendental one, infinitely repeated. He said, no matter how much we uh, analyze human evolution in biological cognitive terms, we 
while we are doing it, we always already presuppose, uh, presuppose our ability to reason, argumentation, and so on and so on. We already presuppose the tools which we are using. So, consequently, Habermas openly says, I'm an agnostic. I don't know what's the ultimate nature of our reality, because I admit we are caught in the circle. And <clears throat> what I'm trying to do, not yet successfully, in my last books, and so on, latest, and in the one that I'm finishing now, is precisely somehow to break out. To find a way out of this transcendental circle, being caught in a circle where a structure is always already here, without falling back into naive realism. Into, oh, I will tell you a general story of uh, reality and so on and so on. But before we go into this, I would like to, uh, I would like to uh, conclude this part with the fourth position, which may appear Lacanian, but I think it's not. It's the position of some, let's call them, brutal materialists from Marquis de Sade to Georges Bataille, this would be, this is another contact with the absolute. It's the absolute of absolute negativity and radical destruction. Bataille is looking in what he look, searches for as the experience of the sacred and so on, the identification with some <coughs> radical negativity in the sense of force of destruction and so on, and only in this utter radical point of blindness, madness, its proper madness, only at this point can we touch the absolute. And then the idea is, of course, for example, my favorite, uh, I hate Antigone, my favorite, uh, one of my favorite, no, seriously, uh, uh, speaking about Sophocles, great guy, but Oedipus et Colonus is the true masterpiece, not Antigone. And of the other Euripides, how do, to translate this, uh, the crazy girls dancing, Baha, Bah. Yeah, 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 yeah. This, you know, this idea of radical zero point, that this is our contact with the absolute. In this way, we can reread, sorry for repeating some old points, we should and can reread even <coughs> Marquis de Sade. Again, sorry for repeating an uh, old point, but for him, you know, first, Saad was, Marquis de Saad, a naive realist. Sorry, naive naturalist. His idea was a very simple one. We humans distort nature. Nature is not just construction, collaboration, work. Nature is only distra also destruction, killing, suffering. So, to be fully natural, to assume our nature, let's also do the horrible things to put it very simply. But then, at a certain point, as Lacan emphasizes, the Sad saw something in a very intelligent way. He saw that in this way, we still remain slave of nature. We are not truly free masters of ourselves. We just try to obey nature. So now comes the Sad's true metaphysical idea, which is, the dream of a radical crime, which does not just fit perfectly the natural rhythm of generation and corruption, but which 
cut short this rhythm itself. His definition of radical crime is not you kill some humans or animals. In this way, you are still caught in the eternal circle of natural generation corruption. His idea of radical crime is to destroy, stop, undermine this circle, circular movement itself. That's his idea of radical crime. To cut short, suspend the very circle of natural causality. And here comes... It's more complex, but basically, Lacan's genius, I claim. Because Lacan claims that what Saad didn't do, he was still too empirical, is that uh, Saad calls this radical negativity the second death. Not just the death of, uh, which is part of the eternal circle of life and death, but the death in the sense of the interruption of this eternal circle itself. So, uh, according to Lacan, it's a beautiful, simple formulation. I quote it, I think, in my Disparities book. Lacan says, what Saad didn't see is that second death doesn't come after the first death. Like, we just are born and die, but then uh, uh, radical act. We no, that second death comes before the first death. While we are alive, we already assume second death insofar as we are caught in the symbolic order, which is the order of death drive, and so on and so on. And for Lacan, this second death is simply the condition of human desire. Human desire is precisely free in the sense that it's no longer caught into the natural rhythm. So, <clears throat> and here comes second move by Kant, for, by Lacan, for Lacan, to establish that if we read the sad in this way, second death, that in this sense, sad has to be read with Immanuel Kant. Because, isn't it a beautiful, provocative thought? What sad describes as this horrible crime, second death, the, the, the interruption of the natural rhythm itself, he describes this almost in precisely the same terms as Kant describes an ethical act. For Kant, ethical act is an act which begins by itself, autonomously, it cannot any longer be grounded in natural causality. For Kant, if you do something, even if it appears as good, but as long as it is grounded in natural causality, in the sense that you do it for some empirical profit causes, even if these profits or causes are very high, like, this would have been a Kantian example. Uh, let's say I see a child there drowning. Okay, I jump into the water and save him or her. But Kant would have asked, did you have a secret narcissistic calculation there? Did you notice that some people are watching you up there and you wanted to appear a hero or whatever? The moment any such consideration enters, it's not an ethical act. It might be beautiful and so on, and... Uh, as Kantians, we should say, even if there was nobody there, but you just imagined the respect for you that this would have aroused impossible witnesses. It's already, in Kantian sense, pathological. Now, the distinction between Kant and, uh, sorry, between uh, Kant and Sad, and the limit of Sad, sorry, of Kant for Lacan, is that for Sad, for Kant, sorry, 
our sexuality cannot reach this level. Our sexuality is totally empirically predetermined. You do it for lust, for pleasure, and so on. You cannot do it as a free act. And I'm sorry to quote it again to you, but it's here. You have maybe the most famous passage of, uh, of uh, in Lacan's uh, 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 account with Sade, where, uh, 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 sorry, a passage from Kant's Critique of Pure Reason, where he says, suppose that someone says that his lust is irresistible when the desired object and opportunity are present. Ask him whether he would not control his passions if, in front of the house where he has this opportunity, a gallows were erected on which he would be hanged immediately after gratifying his lust. We do not have to guess very long what his answer may be. This is for Kant the, the proof that our sexual passion is empirical, pathological, not in ordinary sense. Pathological means for Kant conditioned by contingent empirical objects. But as Lacan points out, but not only true passion does meet this criteria, but a specific humor perversion is that precisely in order to have a passion, you need the threat of some gallows waiting for you. You know, there is, I often quoted it, an old Italian erotic comedy, I forgot the title, where Marcello Mastroianni is in love with a woman and he wants to seduce her to transgress, to do it as a sin. Then the woman loves him and says, they, they are supposed to marry, and the woman and he wants to sleep with her the night before, so that at least there is some transgression. Then the woman, I think it was Virna Lisi, this is 50 years old, just when they were supposed to go bed in a sinful way, the night before wedding, the woman tells him, look, everything is okay, I spoke with the priest, we can do it. Oh. And everything is ruined, so in the last shot of the film, we see him walking on that narrow porch outside on windows, so that at least in this way he risks his life and does something aggressive. You know, uh, so again, for, for Lacan, the sad sexual, this Sadean second crime, sexual, is a proof that sexuality also, not only can be non-pathological, but in its basic structure of death drive, is non-pathological. Our human sexuality is precisely free in the sense that if nothing else in the sense of this doing it just for the sake of it. Did you read? It's a wonderful short, short story of uh, Edgar Allan Poe, uh, The Imp of Perversity, where he says that precisely what specifies us human being is that you do something Poe uses Kantian terms, not for any determinate reasons, but just for the sake of it, which is precisely Kantian formula of free act. Okay, but let's go on. In what sense do we have a limitation here? Not limitation, but uh, 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 what's the limitation of this view? 
it's very nice view, and we can effectively show in Hegel how Hegel does all the time flirt with this idea. Not only in sexuality, typically Hegel misses it. For Hegel, unfortunately, sexuality is just pathological, biological sex, and the only human dimension of sexuality that Hegel sees is through its culturalization. Instead of hitting your, if you are a nice lady, in, and if I were to be younger, I, instead of hitting your head with a stone and then bam bam, I write you poems, all the bullshit, I buy you presents. Like, the idea is that the same natural substance, as in animals, is just elevated into a cultural form. But uh, <clears throat> what in, it's very strange that he doesn't do it. What Hegel doesn't take into account is that it's not as simple as that. The moment we are in human dimension, yes, we have cultivated forums, poetry, rituals, but what they try to control is not natural sex, but a strange excess of a deadly passion which already disturbs nature. Think about pure passion in the form of Tristan and Isolde. Their passion is clearly out of the social order. They talk about the, the, the domain of night where all symbolic rules disappear, this deadly passion, but this is not nature. This is a passion. So the theory here is that between natural and human, there is a moment of negativity, a deadly passion, and we can arrive at human culture only through this passage. So that sexual customs are an attempt to cultivate, to gentrify, not nature, but precisely this excess of wild human freedom. Okay, you find this dimension also in Kant. I will not lose time here. I only want to draw your attention to a fact which I developed in one of my last books of how Hegel has two other beautiful examples of this, which are, of course, both problematic. One, Hegel at his Foucauldian best, is at the beginning of his so-called anthropology, he develops a unique, totally Michel Foucault following Foucauldian, theory of madness, where he says that our human mind, with its his, uh, discursive abilities, reasoning, appears structurally as a defense against madness. That you don't have animal, human. In between is a moment of madness, when we lose our roots in nature and so on and so on. And then Hegel says in a wonderful way that even if all of us empirically do not have to be mad for a moment, but the threat of madness has to be there. Because only against the threat of madness can we account for our civilized rational order. And at the very end of his history, a philosophy of history, people don't know this, the same role is played by war. No, Hegel's last word is not that beautiful, okay, beautiful, not for us, uh, 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 organic, almost fascist state described in his philosophy of right. His last word is uh, war. He says that, uh, and he gives a very good reason, which I think is our big problem today, how to overcome it. He says that basically all our ethics is grounded in the threat of war. In what sense? 
We are citizens here of this city-state, me of my city-state, whatever. And we are allowed to pursue our ordinary goals, welfare, whatever, but the moment of truth comes, and the highest ethical act for us is, are you ready in a world to sacrifice your life? There you are reduced to your pure ethical substance. There things are for the real. Now, uh, <clears throat> Hegel is well aware that, that's why for him, it's a very sad conclusion, I hope he was wrong, that this is why Hegel was opposed to Kant's idea of eternal peace. He says that precisely if you take this eternal threat of war, you never know when there may be war, you will be called to do your duty. This is the precisely what I'll put it like this. What in relation to other countries or states is crime? Hegel admits it. Between states we have brutal relations of nature. We can have peace treaties, but they are always fragile. Ultimately, there is always, by definition, a threat of war. But Hegel knows that this external threat of war is in a way an imminent condition of civil order in our state. The ultimate foundation, again, of our civil order is the ultimate ethical test, is your readiness to sacrifice your life in war and so on. Now, <clears throat> the problem today, of course, is that there is one big Hegelian in this sense who works like this, it's Kim Jong-un. I almost admire them. You know, uh, I will bomb Guam, or what did he threaten to bomb, and so on. I think that precisely this is what we cannot afford. There is one interesting way out here. I doubt if it works. When they were negotiating end of Cold War, Reagan and Gorbachev, I remember a very strange report where in the newspaper that at one of their final talks they came to the idea that, but maybe if we are invaded by aliens, our wars will be over, we will have an external enemy. But you see, it's the same logic. We need an enemy. Uh, so it's... <coughs> sorry. Uh, uh, so, again, but nonetheless, uh, let me slowly conclude. At this level, uh, we have some kind of a fourth position. The absolute is this terrifying zero level, self-destructive, prospect of madness, war, sexual madness, passion, and so on, against the whole work of civilization is to control it. But civilization can function only against this background. And the threat is always here. I think that this was the original, even Hegel's position. It's clearly, again, apropos uh, madness, apropos war, he is a pessimist here. His idea is not at the end we have great peace. No, no. Madness is, when Hegel talks about reconciliation, he really means reconciliation with this terrifying pact. Reconciliation with the fact that you cannot ever sublimate or whatever this threat. So this would be the fourth level of contact with the absolute. Now, if you allow me 
a little bit of time and then because I will do what I promised you. Again, I'm betraying you. That's my nature. Uh, you know, I think that the subtitle of my talk could be Lenin in, you know, my eternal joke, I'm sorry to mention it, Lenin in Warsaw, you know, a young Komsomol guy screwing, that's an old anti-Soviet joke, Soviet joke that I like. If you don't know it, there is a big ex uh, painting exhibition in Moscow and visitors are shocked to see on the paint, you see Nadezhda Krupskaya in bed, Lenin's wife, being fucked by a young Komsomol member, passionately, and then... Uh, the title of the painting is Lenin is in Warsaw. And then the perplexed visitor asks, but why this title? Where is Lenin? And the guide calmly answers, Lenin is in Warsaw, no? That's why she can be doing this in Moscow, no? So maybe in this sense, you can say, you know, like, uh, like Lenin in Warsaw is my sex and the absolute, you know. It's out there as a title, that's why I will not talk about it, you know. But seriously, so if I will not be able to do it today, but I will nonetheless give you a hint, what I, nonetheless, if I can, as always, rely on you. Uh, so, again, you have the data for MI6 or whatever, you have for most of them. I will send you today a text and you forward it to them. The text with exactly this title, which is chapter of my forthcoming book, I only ask you kindly don't put it on the web because then the publisher can prosecute it once I was already in big trouble. <clears throat> so what's my idea here? Two points. My idea is that what if we approach, I will just give you two hints. One hint. What if we approach the question of the absolute in the opposite way? Not the question how we can break out of our historical limitation and reach the absolute as the fragile, um, beautiful appearance, as the ultimate foundation of reality, as the force of destruction, whatever. But uh, this truly Hegelian question, which I quote to justify the title of my previous book, Disparity. What if we are approaching this in the wrong way? What if the gap, I would like to begin with the very gap that separates us from the absolute, because the whole problem of how to reach absolute means that absolute is as a distance. And to put it very short, shortly, my solution is don't try to reach the absolute directly, but ask yourself the question, what if the gap that separates me from the absolute is already immanent, inherent to the absolute itself? What if in my very separation from the absolute, I am precisely in the absolute because this separation characterizes the absolute itself? That you may know how me, in my atheist way, I read Christianity. You know that God's famous, Eli Eli Lama Sabachthani, God, why, Father, why have you forsaken me? This is how in Christianity you identify with God. You identify with Christ at the very point when he feels abandoned by God, which means your separation from God is a separation of God from itself, which is I am already in. And 
I go very quickly here. This brings us, the, this form of separation, to Kantian notion of the sublime. I will not go into this parallel. It's explained in all my last books between Kant's antinomies. You will get this in the manuscript more in detail. Kant's antinomies and Lacan's formulas of sexuation. But let's limit ourselves to the sublime. The sublime Kantian sublime, of course, not the usual, is uh, the idea that we can experience the absolute only through our very failure to experience it. We try to do something, we fail it, but precisely in this failure the negative image of absolute shines through. Like that's Kantian idea, for example, of the dynamic absolute. Storm, horrible thing, something which, and Kant's idea is, even the strongest storm cannot capture the strength of the moral law in myself. So, precisely through being exposed to a natural disaster, negatively I experience the spiritual dimension, but only negatively, in the failure itself. And uh, now you will say, but what has this to do with sexuality? Ha, ha, ha. Or you can say, but this has not, this is just Kant. Sorry, not in, in his name. <laughs> you see, this is why, why people accuse me. Like, you as normal people would say, why did I even think about it? Why didn't I? Oh, that's my, fuck it, I was created like that. Oh, God. No, seriously, no. You know that Kant sexualizes sublime. You know where? In this wonderful early writing, which is later taken over in his critique of judgment on the sentiment of beautiful and sublime, where Kant, in a male chauvinist way, I reject that, identifies beautiful with feminine and sublime with masculine. I claim he was wrong here, and even didn't know, because later... He developed in a wonderful way, in critique of pure reason and later in critique of judgment, two modes of the sublime, mathematical and dynamic sublime, and there is implicitly the sexual difference. So where is it? You remember I told you on the first day this dirty example of how, uh, of how uh, you get uh, of this sudden disublimation. Like, you are with your sexual partner, all of a sudden disgust enters, and so on. This brings us to Lacan's definition of the sublime, where the sublime is, as Lacan, sorry, puts it, is an ordinary object, thing, elevated to the level of the thing, the absolute object. But this identification of the two is always fragile. When you are in erotic trends, the beloved is an ordinary man, woman, elevated to the level of the thing, but this can all of a sudden uh, disublimate itself. You just get, and uh, what I would have said is that this very gap is the only way that in sexuality we experience the absolute. Not in the vulgar New Age way. Oh my God, I screwed your brain out. It was absolute pleasure. No, it's never that. <laughs> but it's simply, uh, and that's the beauty of sexuality, that you always miss it. 
the ultimate experience. But through this, missing it, it's there. It's there as a negative, as a negative uh, echo. That's why I claim, I don't have time to develop it, it will be in the chapter that I will send you. That's why I think that uh, Catholic Church is so opposed to just sexuality which does not serve. I never got it. I always repeat this point. Can you answer me? I had debates with priests, with bishops in Germany, with these... Why do they say, how can they say that sexuality without procreation is animal? I'm sorry, I think it's exactly the opposite. Animals do it when there is a mating season for procreation. Women do this that they elevate an act which is in itself physically a rather ridiculous act of copulation. They elevate it to the absolute. But always in this fragile sense that you get it, you don't get it, and so on. This is why Freud focuses on sexuality. Not because uh, sexuality is the natural base of our being, but precisely sexuality in the human sense. This sexuality as fractured, uh, traversed by impossibility, is the, our first metaphysical experience. Okay, I propose, I'm so sorry, I know I disappointed you, but fuck it, that's life. I will, I promise, after I return to my hotel, I will immediately send it to you, and you will all get, again, my, the key chapter of my new book, where I try to, go, because I also, to give you kind of a, to maybe incite your desire for something more attractive, because the problem is here then, if this perspective of post-humanity, let's say our reproduction will be purely done in laboratories and so on, and uh, sexuality just pleasure principle and so on, and we are directly linked to computers, we lose our distance towards reality. What will happen with our being human? Will our desire survive? Yes, no, in note, in what form, and so on and so on. I'm not a cultural pessimist here again, but I just don't know. So I propose that now yeah, we do we a little bit trend. of democratic so, debate. And if by you, the way, that was really good. This year. My God, why do you hate me so much? I mean. It was, and you left us on a cliff. Ah, you mean so, that yesterday and the day before yesterday it was pure shit, no? Yeah, yeah. okay, I got it, okay. Uh, there's, type, yeah, we've got Sorry. there's a question at the back, yeah? Give it a microphone. It? Or you can come down or shout or whatever, yeah? I'd like to... Oops, I you Okay. I'd like to just engage with the question that was asked in the last lecture about the difference between Lacan and Jung. Yeah. Because I've been reading a lot of uh, Alenka's Ubanjic, What is Sex? Yeah. And the formula she proposes is that there, there is two because the one is not. Yeah. So the not one is presupposed as like the absolute reality, like absolute negativity. And then, it doesn't matter. And then I was also reading in Plato that in the symposium that there's man and woman but originally there's an androgynous form yeah 
like a, a unified androgynous group. Yeah. And then I was talking to some men about how they experience their sexuality now, and they were both sort of trying to get away from their, their status as a man towards a more androgynous form. And I was just wondering, I was wondering if you're going against the Jungian like essence of man and woman as the yeah. substantial yeah. self. And but, there's like this absolute negativity of the negative of the not one. How do we understand uh, androgyny in the, the current sexual landscape as like a useful concept? Okay, I cannot. Does that question make sense? Sorry. Is that, is that, yes. that clear? Yeah, I, I hope so. Because no, the, but the first. Formula, the formula is there, there is two because the one is not. Yeah, but then she goes on. Yeah. I know, my God. I read the manuscript to be yeah, debated yeah. with her. But then at the end, there are not even two. You know that it gets even more complex. Because in what sense are there two? Her first point is that there are not even two, that woman doesn't exist. There is only man, and then you go to this that even man doesn't exist. Her point is this one, if I get it correctly. First, uh, that uh, some Delezians or LGBT plus people would like to begin with some original multiplicity. Their view, to which me and Delenk are both totally opposed, is that original is neither one nor two, they are both bad metaphysical, binary, monotheist, but some kind of originally dispersed multiplicity, and then, as a force of social oppression, the binary form is imposed, you have to choose being one or two, and so on. Now, let me give you, I hope you will swallow it, a, a, a very abstract theoretical answer to this one. Uh, 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 Alenka Supanjic's point is that one is not one in the sense that it's in itself failed, which means always accompanied by a lack and or surplus. And as I already improvised on the first day, I think feminine subjectivity enters here. It's a very nice Hegelian feminist view. When Hegel says, the point is, you know, his most famous passage, to conceive the absolute not only as substance but also as subject. Her point would have been to conceive the absolute not only as masculine but also as feminine in the sense that femininity is not uh, another substance supplementing men. We have men, masculine principle, but we also get... No, masculine principle is in itself faith substance. And in this failure, subjectivity enters. Now I will answer your crucial question. Uh, I, I will repeat, maybe you already did it here even, a wonderful joke from... Okay, I'll put it like this. So, how do we get from multiplicity to one or two or whatever? The traditional answer, Lacanian it may appear, is the one that I already improvised here many times, that Whenever you have a series of particular entities, you have to include one which embodies its exception. You know, the examples I even used here, I think, maybe not on Monday, but certainly ten times before. 
I didn't correct me. Did I talk about? I'm so ashamed to on this Monday. Did I talk here about uh, Asiatic mode of production? <laughs> you know what's the idea? The idea is this one. In Marx, we have late Marx five, six modes of production. Pre-class society, so-called primitive, wrongly called, of course. Slavery, feudalism, capitalism, and whatever shit will come, uh, communism or nothing. Now, then Marx added Asiatic mode of production. But it's clear where is the problem here. It doesn't really work. Marx originally had five modes of production. Then he noticed that some of societies, ancient China, ancient India, ancient Egypt, uh, 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 Inca and other South American empires, that they don't fit any of this. And he proposed another mode of production, which is really an empty container. The true meaning of Asiatic mode of production is all those modes of production which, doesn't, which don't fit my classification. You know, it appears to be a positive term, but it's just the embodiment of a lack. And uh, so uh, this would be the classical masculine form of totalization. You know, it's the old joke, you know, if we go to Borges, that story quoted by Foucault at the beginning of the order of things, you know, when Borges proposes the Chinese, the Chinese classification of dogs, where the last item is all dogs who are not included in this classification. For Lévi-Strauss developed this, that every symbolic system, because it tries to be universal, but at the same time it has to exclude some, it cannot be universal, has to include this type of paradoxical entity, which appears to be one of the terms, but, but precisely is a standing from the excluded. And, uh, uh, of course, the same role would have been, for example, in Hegel. That's why read Frank Ruda's book of Pöbel, Rebel. Rebel is in Hegel precisely this. A special stand within so society which includes all those who are not integrated into society, who do not. But then, there is... Uh, so this is how one arises through this reflexive move, the one of exception out of multitude. But there is another version, which I much prefer, it's much closer to what Lacan uh, describes as feminine, that you have, this is what Alenka describes with Lacan's terms, the repression of the binary signifier. We have the couple one other, masculine, feminine, but the other one doesn't have a signifier, and uh, that element to fill in this lack, multiplicity enters. The example, I'm sorry to repeat myself endlessly, that I like here is uh, Woody Allen's early movie, Love and War, a parody on Tolstoy, War and Peace, and it's all about Tolstoy. Now, which is the binary signifier to Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, no, for us. And you ask yourself, where is Dostoevsky here? <laughs> and he does, I don't like Woody Allen too much, but here he does something very intelligent. He, the repressed returns in just one dialogue among two actors there, where the name Dostoevsky is not pronounced, it remains primordially repressed, but in an ingenious way, I love it, 
all the great Dostoevsky novel titles are included. What's that? What happened with that idiot? Ah, you mean the guy who committed the crime and got the punishment? Yeah, yeah, that Karamazov brother. Oh, he became a gambler and so on. No, this is the model. The other, that multiplicity comes to fill in, not only multiplicity, even I would say that would be the ultimate Hegelian-Lacanian dialectic. It's not just that we have a basic opposition, like yin-yang, and then it's subdivided into species. No, we get species because of the failure of the first big opposition. That's why, again, we can read in this way LGBT+, plus either LGBTQ, whatever, multiplicity, and then a plus, and this woman is this plus as such. This is why I would have said, uh, that's the formula that came to me. Woman is not more than man. Woman is this more itself. Or another way, you reminded me of this, that Alenka puts it, no, that, uh, that's why we should not, from Lacanian standpoint, identify gender and sex. Gender with the classification of uh, you are a boots, you are a this, Gender, what is missing in gender classification is precisely the tension that defines uh, sexuality as such. So again, uh, the idea is that uh, 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 we have a strange situation where gender and its species are on the same level. We have a gender which is deprived of its counterpart, and then, we, why, it's a very philosophical question, why does a gender have a species or genus universal? The idea is because it's failed in itself. It's a very speculative Hegelian thought. It's not just that a universality has species. Why does it have species? Because it's failed in itself as universality. Now you will say I'm dreaming, it's bullshit. I will give you a simple example which I hope I will convince you, even two examples. If you read Hegel's political philosophy, he speaks, among other things, of different types of states, different species of state, antique slave state, medieval state, whatever, democracy, and so on. But why do we have multiple states? Because there is an antagonism, and Hegel is quite aware of it, an impossibility inscribed into the very notion of state, later articulated by Marx. State wants to be universal, representative of its citizen, but always has to exclude some and so on. This contradiction in state. And we have multiple states precisely as attempts to resolve this contradiction inscribed into the universal notion itself. It's the same with the work of art. We don't have art as such, and then different forms of art or epochs of art. All history of art for Hegel is struggling with the same problem and failing again and again. So what is Hegel's solution? It's a very simple, effective one. At the end, we do get an ideal state which fits its notion, but it's no longer a state. For Hegel, it's concretely a religious community. 
which should exclude all. Then, of course, for Hegel later, even this doesn't work, it's philosophy and so on. But, but you see the point how we have multiplicity in this case of states, precisely because there is an incompleteness, a contradiction in the very notion of state. A state, for principled reasons, cannot do what it is supposed to do, be an organic frame equally, adequately treating all its uh, uh, inhabitants, citizens, and so on and so on. And uh, this is the way I, this is the way I, I tend, again, I tend to pursue. I'm sorry, I got a little bit confused, but fuck it. I just wanted to, wanted Please. To, I just wanted to say with your point that you're basically saying that, like, and this is my interpretation of their response was when they were saying they wanted to be more androgynous, yeah. I interpreted it to be that they failed at being men. And that they were... I, uh, they this were is a beautiful with, formula. They were struggling yeah. with men, so they wanted to be androgynous. Yeah, yeah, this is a very beautiful reading. I may, if you can somehow send me your name, I... You know how I will... I like to cheat. <laughs> I will... I took this... I, I will take this idea from you... No, I will not do it, but I'm dreaming about doing this and just adding a footnote. After I wrote these lines, I, I, I saw that a friend of mine already had a similar idea, you know. This is the dirtiest academic game of recognizing your debt, but, because this is a very beautiful formula. But you know what this means? It's wrong. I will now read you more literally than you said. Maybe you already thought about it. The point is not that we are men or women because we cannot be androgynous. This is too Jungian. We would like to be the original platonic unity. We cannot... No. We want to be men. We cannot be. We are androgynous and so on. In this sense only. But I don't like the term androgynous. I would prefer transgender... But not in the usual sense of transgender, like, I think this uh, term is used in a too common way today, because, you know, for example, in what sense, I never got it, are, are people who turn like uh, Bradley Manning, Chelsea Manning from men to women or other way around? I, can I ask you something very naive? But they strictly, for me, remain within the coordinates of sexual difference, in the most traditional sense. It's just, sorry guys, I don't want to be here, I want to be on the other side. I mean, you change position, but the opposition remains. I think this is not enough. For, this is why I never saw in what sense gay people or lesbians are transgender. They fully rely on sexual difference. Their point is just, if I am a gay man, I don't want to screw women, I want to do it with men. But sorry, you still exclude half of humanity, you are still within this scope. For radical transgender, it's for me something much more radical, where it's not just, I'm by mistake here, I want to be there. But I question the entire established form of difference as such. Not in the simple sense of negating it, but in a much more radical sense of it is here, but I don't find my place in it. It's, you experience its antagonism as such. So, uh, 
Again, your formula is here very nice. You know why I like it? And then I let you to reply again. Because uh, I like this idea that it's not that there is an original organic form and then we fall into particularities. The original organic form, what appears as androgynous all, emerges because of our failure to be a particular. This is a beautiful formula, but you wanted to... Exactly what you're saying... Isn't that and exactly how you articulate the absolute as this zero-level work of civilization to control this negative background? Yeah. Isn't that exactly how we should be interpreting Jordan Peterson? Like, he, be more precise. There's other questions as well, though. And then, and then, I'll, and then I'll shut up. But it's it's like his his very existence is coming in this trying to re-establish failed masculinity. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And he's against this this multiplicity of, of gender and stuff like this, but exactly how you're articulating transgender yeah. is perhaps a way to articulate a way out of that tension. No, I agree here with you, although I must say something very naive. As I already said, and I was attacked for it, that uh, his madness of cultural Marxism, I, I buy all that, but his... New Age Jungianism, I will never... Like, I'm ready to talk with fascists, but not with New Age people. <laughs> Sorry, I'm getting That's a little great. bit yeah. tired. Cannot we say, fuck you, we love you, but... Uh, and then see you really? again. Okay, one question more. Uh, ah, this yeah, gentleman yeah. had a, my, my, a my question. My goes back, so I don't really know that it's that interesting. So I'll just put it in as an observation, which was the conversation you had about the nature of nature, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah. And there's this wonderful um, Banksy... Um, piece of graffiti am, yeah, yeah. That, that, that shows a supermarket trolley in the middle of a, an ocean with the goldfish sitting in the middle of that trolley and the shark circling the circling mm-hmm. goldfish which was mm-hmm. the human mm-hmm. in the middle of it but the thing that particularly interests me about that which was the area that you talked about with the human and the pre-human mm-hmm. is that the issue that there is environmentally now is this release if you like of pre-human capital and that I mean in the way that capital in Marx crystallizes labor, mm-hmm. pre-human carbon forms in the form of oil and yeah. everything, just really just crystallized sunlight, crystallizes pre-human, yeah, yeah. pre-human existence. And it's the very, very rapid release of that that is the issue that, you know, that, that, that we face today. And the issue that, you know, where we go with that, I don't know. I mean, Lovelock at the end of his Gaia-type series comes <coughs> to the conclusion that Fuck it, we can do nothing more about it because we're human. That's what humans do. So, do we care about it? Well, do we care about it because we're human and you've got this circularity of reason yeah, yeah. going on there? And so, so that was an area that I've... I've, I've no, no, but it would be nice to, pers- to pursue this path yeah. because... Although this may appear anachronism, but I think sometimes to read it anachronistically, like something that was obviously there without humanity, to read it as fossilized capital and so on. That's the proper historical approach. This is how I apply to Marx. You know when Hegel, no, Hegel, T.S. Eliot, you're a great conservative, I always quote him that famous sentence, you know how a really radically new work of art doesn't just introduce something new. It forces us to rewrite, to change the entire past. That's what capitalism does. You cannot say we are just projecting. No, in some sense today, oil reserves are fossilized capital debt. And again, it's not just our false impression, metaphor, or whatever you know. And I, I, you know what I try to avoid here? 
the conclusion of some of my friends also along the lines of terrorism, where they claim, and even in Fred Jameson, my good friend, I noticed this, the idea that uh, people are so blind today and so on that only a mega ecological catastrophe with millions death can awaken us. I find this logic a little bit too suspicious, because first, how are they so sure that if a mega catastrophe happens, a chain explosion of nuclear uh, uh, electricity plants, whatever, and millions die, well, I'm not so sure that a new communism would emerge, or even new fascism emerges, or whatever. Well, I, I mean, I quite like the, the you know, the Zizeski Rogan view on the thing, but I think Zizeski Rogan, I don't completely agree with it, because he kind of has a bet each way on there's dialectical and there's the non-dialectical, and he, <coughs> and he has both, both concepts in it. But his ideas around entropy coming into a closed system, which we have, yeah. you, you have no choice. Unless you're going to say, Elon Musk is going to achieve it and get everybody to Mars, which I doubt. I mean, you know, you, you, you can't deal with that fundamental increase in entropy, and, that, and, and, and that's what determines the system at the end of the day. And it has nothing to do with people or non-people. It's just yeah, reality. yeah, 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 yeah. Here, yes, here, I. What I like in what you were saying is that for a long time, as already said, I thought that all this idea of post-human is just a publicity joke. No, we have really begin to think in these terms. Deleuze, I often quote him, said that already the true art watches reality, we have to learn to watch reality with non-human eyes. That's already what great art is doing, I think. Great art is not this, oh my God, the, 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 the discover a warm human being in everything. No, thanks. We have enough of warm human beings. They screwed it up, everything possible. I'm sorry, I have to drop that. You will get the text. And yeah, he's been working overtime three days in a row. Set plus labor, set plus value, set plus enjoyment for us. Thank you very much. No, I wasn't working. Sorry. I wasn't working for three days. I was mostly sleeping. I was doing the usual thing, improvising on the basis of a manuscript. You know, I'm always selling here manuscript. I'm not crazy enough to work for you, you know, I just test the manuscript. Thanks very much, hope to see you. My plan is now to drop by the next short seminar, end of April, beginning of May, and then there, if they will find time, and then the summer, no? Probably the last week of July, when you will get some really new stuff. Thank you, I appreciate it. Thanks.